0: Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is Reset. The U.S. is the only developed nation where the overall maternal mortality rate is on the rise. And black women in this country are three to four times more likely to die in childbirth than white women. It cuts across all socioeconomic levels,
1: and it doesn't matter if you're highly educated, if you have money, if you're in good shape, it cuts
0: across all of that. That's Representative Robin Kelly. She'll talk about the legislation she's trying to push through Congress to improve maternal health. But first. Ladies and gentlemen, we have passed a budget for fiscal year 2020. The Chicago City Council has passed Mayor Lightfoot's $11.6 billion budget. But it wasn't easy and it wasn't unanimous. WBEZ reporter Claudia Morell joined us from City Hall to explain how it went down.
2: It passed 39 to 11, and a lot of the 11 no votes were from freshman aldermen, a lot of um, self-proclaimed Democratic socialists who said that this was going to be a really tough vote for them because it didn't include a lot of the issues that they had campaigned on uh, as it relates to affordable housing, uh, mental health services, and they were really disappointed that the mayor didn't work harder to look for more progressive revenue options uh, that they say is needed to, you know, have... People with more wealth in Chicago cover the budget holes so that, you know, the south and west sides aren't uh, left on the sidelines.
0: For people like Alderman James Kaplman, who said this budget confronts and addresses Chicago's tale of two cities, supporters of the budget, what did they say?
2: Supporters said that this is actually one of their easiest votes. It was interesting listening to the veteran alderman and the newer alderman kind of talk through their decision-making. And the veterans would always start by saying, well, I've been here 20 years, or I've been here 17 years. And, you know, this budget doesn't include the sale of city assets. Remember when the city had sold the parking meters in 2008 to avoid a property tax increase? Uh, They said, you know, it it didn't involve a whole bunch of borrowing and pushing debt into the future. They said it didn't improve a massive property tax increase like 2015. And so they said that, you know, this is a good budget for now and that, you know, there will be time to be talking about revenue options in the future. The mayor's only been in office for eight months and that it is her first budget. And so they kind of couched in that direction. Like we've done a lot of past painful budgets uh, and in the grand scheme of things, this one was a no brainer.
0: (laughs) Well, quickly remind us of some of the biggest moves or financial decisions by the mayor that are now enshrined in this budget.
2: It creates this new Office of Public Safety, which will combine the police, fire, and Office of Emergency Management, uh, the 911 call center. Uh, And this was one issue that came up because... Opponents had said that, you know, the city is spending even more on police when they should be spending on mental health. But it was to cover a lot of overtime spending and to carry a lot of the liabilities for police-involved settlements, you know, on the, the tab of the police department. Uh, it also adds uh, some extra grant funding for mental health services, about $9 million and it adds money for affordable housing Uh, opponents said that you know it wasn't enough and that they wanted to reopen the mental health clinics and that you know there should be a full court press on affordable housing it also relies and this was another issue on uh, these ambulance reimbursements from the the state government about 165 million so there is still this hole uh, that uh, is expected to be filled by the end of the year This is also the same budget that includes the minimum wage increase for everyone but uh, tipped workers. They will get a $15 minimum wage by 2021. Uh, Tipped workers will see their wages increase. I believe it's about 60 percent of that, so about $8 an hour. Those are pretty much the the main takeaways.
0: Did anything surprise you about the discussion over the budget, or or did the debate pretty much follow along lines we already know exist in city council?
2: Yeah, for the most part, it fell along lines that we already know. Uh, There's definitely a newer, more emboldened and progressive freshman class that's coming to office. uh, And you see that by all the no votes uh, were from freshman aldermen who said that, you know, this just didn't settle right with, you know, why they were elected to the seat. And then you heard some opposition from uh, the mayor's two biggest critics, uh, Alderman Beal and Raymond Lopez. Uh, Beal actually wrote uh, a letter to the mayor yesterday saying why her budget was terrible. And she responded saying that, uh, well, if he had actually showed up to the hearings and didn't go hunting, maybe he would uh, uh, know what was in in the budget. So we're seeing these uh, two different sides where, you know, this more progressive, younger, crop of aldermen who really want to, to use the power of the office to create more revenue options. They, they're they looking more for, you know, ways that they can tax uh, new constituencies in the city versus the, the more veteran aldermen are just, they just wanted a balanced budget.
0: Well, as we know, Mayor Lightfoot headed to Springfield to try to get some laws passed through there, including one that would address the uh, graduated real estate exchange tax. And that didn't happen. Was that addressed at all today?
2: It was brought up in the sense that um, the aldermen who don't believe that we're going to get the money for ambulance reimbursement say, you know, we were confident that Springfield was going to give us this and they didn't. But there are also options for that to still be on the table. Uh, the city could put it on uh, the ballot in 2020 and approve it without the need of Springfield. It's just a question of whether if they want to put it before voters and saying that, you know, we'll just have to to go to Springfield the next time. And this is nothing new. Uh, This whole, well, we need to rely on Springfield issue with the city budget happens every year. Because even though Chicago is the largest municipality in the state, uh, the state lawmakers still control a lot of uh, what they can do.
0: All right, we'll have to leave it there. That's WBEZ city politics reporter Claudia Morrell joining us from City Hall. Claudia, thanks. Thank you. The U.S. is the only developed nation where the maternal mortality rate is on the rise. Black women in the United States are three to four times more likely to die in childbirth than white women. Here in Illinois, that racial disparity is even worse. Congresswoman Robin Kelly has been shining a light on this issue for years. She's the sponsor of the Helping Medicaid Offer Maternity Services, or the Helping Moms Act of 2019, which is making its way through Congress. Kelly is a Democrat, representing Illinois' 2nd Congressional District, which includes parts of Chicago's South Side, South Suburbs, and Kankakee. Kelly first became involved with this issue about three years ago when Judge Glenda Hatchett, famous as TV's Judge Hatchett, came forward with a tragic story about her daughter. She delivered the baby, but there were complications after delivery, and
1: the family noticed and asked for help, and then there were tests that were ordered. And the tests never came. the hours went by, hours went by, and they just didn't get the attention and Then, when they finally did the test, they had to rush her right to the operating room and When they opened her up, she died immediately um, a heart attack right. so um and we had them come to d c It was actually three years ago this December, and we had a a briefing, and the room was filled and There were people there that, like even the photographer, that was that he lost his daughter to maternal mortality and other people. And it just seems like more and more stories came out uh, after that time.
0: It's interesting because you have these high-profile cases like the one you mentioned with Judge Hatchett. Um, Serena Williams talked about Mm -hmm. her her maternal experience. When you talk to your constituents or or women who are also engaged, what do you hear about what they're experiencing in this process of childbirth?
1: Well, first of all, maternal mortality, when you mentioned Serena and then uh, Kara, that it cuts across all socioeconomic levels. It happens to highly educated. It happens to women, period, but it happens to, as you stated, black women more. And it doesn't matter if you're highly educated, if you have money, If you're in good shape, because she was all of those things, and obviously Serena's in good shape, you know, it cuts across all of that. But I think the feeling is that women in general, black women in particular, we're not listened to, or, you know, we can tolerate more pain, things like that. So that's where you. Get to the part about—I don't like to use the word cultural competency, but I'll just say, you know, understanding, cultural understanding, respect, uh, you know, a medical professional that understands you, your community, your realities. And I think that some of that is missing. Uh, But, you know, there's other things, too, like collecting— The data, there are places that started, like Philadelphia started a review committee, and their uh, maternal mortality went down 75% once starting that. So looking at what is causing this, what can we do differently, what are best practices that are done in hospitals that don't have this issue?
0: Have you been able to get bipartisan support around this issue?
1: Well, my uh, original bill is the Mamas Act Mm Act. And I could not get one Republican, even the ob to sign on to the bill. So we did um, water it down a little bit, the Helping Moms Act, and then Republicans uh, did sign on. But I just look at this as uh, a first step to get to uh, the Mamas Act, where uh, we do move to full coverage for a year because all the Uh, medical professionals, the healthcare professionals that we worked with, they said that that was something that, you know, was highly, highly recommended.
0: So what did you lose in the MAMA's Act uh, that you thought was important to respond to this issue?
1: Well, we put it back to the states. So, you know, depending on if the state wants to do it, and we know that some states, you know, will do more things and then other states, you know, may not. Um, Like the state of... um, Georgia is one of the worst. Uh, Louisiana, Indiana, and when you think of those states, you oftentimes don't think about the most progressive or you know expanding coverage and things like that. So uh, now we leave it up to the states, and then we ha- we have incentive for the states to do it, but it's still up to the state if they want to do it.
0: So to be clear, the Helping Moms Act would incentivize states to extend Medicaid coverage for new moms through that year right. following childbirth. What kinds of incentives are being offered to states?
1: Well, it's, it's a 5% match. So it's a uh, money incentive mm-hmm. to um, uh, to to do this.
0: Well, as we said at the beginning, the United States is the only developed nation where we're seeing Um, maternal mortality rise. Why do you think it's difficult to get the kind of support at the federal level behind addressing this issue? It's typical, and I hate to stereotype, but typical
1: Republican action that they don't want to sign on to something like this because you're costing us more money and, you know, those kind of things. But you say that, but then on the other hand, you gave a big tax cut to corporations, you know, so or with uh, even though I, you know, we should do whatever we can to help our troops and those kind of things. But when you look at sometimes where we're spending money, it, that doesn't make sense either, you know, but I, I think that was it that just they did not want to look at expanding Medicaid. <laughs> to me, that's the bottom line. I didn't hear, you know, anything else. Why wouldn't you want to collect data? Why wouldn't you want to the other Uh, prongs of the MAMA's Act. Why wouldn't you want to do a review committee? Why wouldn't you want different or better training? So when people come out of whatever their schools are, nurses, doctors, whatever it is, that they see the patient for the patient, you know, and listen better, better care. You know, I, I don't understand it myself. It was very frustrating because on the Energy and Commerce Committee, some of the very states that are the worst are represented on Energy and Commerce, Georgia, Indiana.
0: I wonder if you tie this at all to the representation of women in elected office in that we, though, we've seen an increase in women running for elected office, winning office. Um, I think if you look across the board, there's still an imbalance there. Do you think that's part of it?
1: I can say that in one sense, but Indiana has a couple of women that represent them, and one of them is on energy and commerce, and she was against it also. So yes, I think it definitely matters that you need diverse voices and diverse representation at the table without a doubt. But also, um, you know, we see that on the democratic side on the republican side there's not there's simply not that many women when when you're on various committees they may have one female so maybe if they had more women and the women felt more women around them they might feel freer to um vote like they truly feel but i haven't seen it since i've been in uh not in congress
0: Well, you've said this legislation, and I'll quote you here, we can't allow the perfect to be the enemy of the good. This is a good bipartisan first step, but it must be the first of many. To your mind, what are the next steps? Well, I think the next steps are continue to work, working with the
1: advocates, and uh, to see how we can get this covered for a year. I think that that definitely is a big one. Um, I was just in a meeting, and one of the health care professionals talked about that when we talk about maternal mortality and morbidity, that one-third of the issues happen after the woman has the baby already, and one-third happens before. And when you look at the deaths, I think the numbers around um, uh, 75% of the deaths are preventable. But that they're preventable because you're going to the doctor and you're getting checkups and those kind of things.
0: Well, the House Committee on Energy and Commerce, as you mentioned, approved the Helping Moms Act last week. Just walk us through what's next in the process.
1: It was voted out of committee, so now it'll come to the House floor. Mm -hmm. And uh, hopefully, since it's bipartisan it'll pass off of the House floor. Then it goes to the Senate, where many things have gone to die. There's like 275 bipartisan bills there that have not been called yet. But I'm hoping, since we have a lot of Republicans on the bill, that Mitch McConnell will um, call this bill. Because again, there's 10 states that are really bad. And uh, and Kentucky is number 13. So his state is not doing so well either when it comes to maternal mortality. So I'm hoping that the bill gets called.
0: And how is Illinois doing?
1: Not great. Uh, Illinois loses approximately 80 to 100 women a year. And even though the national average for black women are three to four times, that of white women in Illinois is six times. And I hear not going in the right direction, but Illinois definitely has state champions and state Rep. Mary Flowers and state Senators Castro and Collins. We did actually a briefing together and a hearing together. So uh, there are definitely champions in Illinois that are trying to
0: do something about the issue. Well, Congresswoman, I want to spend a few minutes with you on the impeachment inquiry into President Trump. Yesterday, Democratic Congressman uh, Adam Schiff, head of the House Intelligence Committee, wrote a letter to you and other representatives. Thus, last week's hearing and the overall inquiry have yielded plenty of evidence of the president's misconduct and, quote, corrupt intent. What is your assessment of what you heard during the hearings? Well,
1: I'm on oversight. So Oversight Foreign Affairs and Intel were in the closed-door hearings. And I agree with uh, Adam's assessment that uh, enough was said in the closed door, then, which was brought to the public over this last uh, couple of weeks, and I think that we have heard enough. But I also believe there's more to hear with you know Bolton and Mulvaney, Pompeo, Giuliani. I, I think there's more to come.
0: What stuck out to you most from last week's hearings?
1: I would have to say, uh, Miss Hill. She was just so clear, matter of fact not intimidated. She just stuck to her guns, you know what I mean? And um, I I think that she was believable, uh, forthright. Mm -hmm.
0: What do you say to critics, perhaps even some of your constituents who say the impeachment inquiry is a waste of time? As you said, the Senate is the place where things are going to die. And Senate Republicans have already indicated they will not remove President Trump from office. So what do you say to that critique that this isn't worthwhile?
1: we still have to do our jobs and no one is above the law i mean that's the bottom line and also we cannot lower our standards you know for this president and what does it say to future uh men and women that will be in that office but he's not above the law and um you know people are stepping forward from his administration and many of the people that have stepped forward they're not Democrats, they're Republicans.
0: So what happens next for you and other Democratic congressmen?
1: As far as the impeachment? Mm-hmm. Well, um, it'll be turned over to the Judiciary Committee, and then they'll write the articles of impeachment, and then we'll vote in the House whether we think you know, it should go forward or not.
0: In the meantime, are you reaching out across the aisle to have conversations with your Republican colleagues about this issue?
1: I speak to some of them, but not... Very many, because I already know, you know, when President Trump said that he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and people would still stick with him, that's what it seems like, that they're going to stick with him in most cases, no matter what, just uh, Congressman Amash has you know, said that, he said it before we said it, that he should be impeached. And I really believe in my heart that many of them think that or know that he's done wrong, but they just don't want to say anything. Like so many things, he said nothing to do with impeachment, things that he's done. Um, I know some of them are troubled by it, but they just don't say anything.
0: I wonder if for, for your constituents, who are very concerned about where we are right now as a nation. A lot of people talk about divisiveness. What do you see as the path through that uh, for the nation?
1: Well, one thing I always say to everybody, no matter what you see on the news, we do get along better than people think. There are some people that have been together a really long time, and uh, people are friendlier then people think there's a lot of bipartisan bills that leave the House and go to the Senate. So it's not, you know, we're not fighting like that. There is a respect. But I do think that he has been a divider in chief. And I do think that we need someone new in the office that will, not to quote any candidate, but, you know, we have to get back the soul of our nation and, um, you know, what America I I would say, is known for looking out for each other and those kind of things. And um, but I could see, you know, why people think that. And, you know, we keep saying we're better than that. Um, We should be better than that. But I mean, I just think that he has really been very divisive for this country.
0: Well, before we wrap up, you're in your district this week, and it's a rare time away from Washington. And it is, again, coming at this time when there is an impeachment inquiry happening. Also, 2020 presidential campaign is ramping up. What will you be asking your constituents? What What do you want to hear from them about their concerns right now?
1: Well, actually, um, many of my constituents—not just this week, but even when I'm just home for the weekend—many of my constituents come to me and say, "Impeach him." Many, many, many. I mean, I get some phone calls, you know, not to do it, but also the thing is, um, what I want the constituents to know, even though we are involved in this impeachment, but we are still legislating. As I said, there were 275 bipartisan bills, but at least 400 bills that have gone over to the Senate. So it's not that we're not doing our job. Obviously, we just talked about maternal mortality around health care, around voting rights, you know, around uh, ethics and a lot of things, economic development. And we're still doing our job. And we want people, you know, to realize that, too. We can't help it that Mitch McConnell is more interested in, you know, getting judges in than it seems like anything else. But we are still doing our job. So we are still legislating.
0: That's Congresswoman Robin Kelly. She's a Democrat representing Illinois' second congressional district, which includes parts of Chicago's South Side, the South Suburbs, and Kankakee. Congresswoman, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you, and happy Thanksgiving. That's today's Reset. Keep in touch with the show via Twitter. We're at WBEC Reset and I'm at Jay White Pup Radio. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening and let's talk again soon.